he was looking pretty bad. And I was, that was the point where I was like, okay, he might die out here. And I cannot, just think in my head, you cannot let this happen. This week on the Duck Gun Podcast, we're going to explore the tragic event that has been called the day that the duck hunters died. We will hear the first-hand accounts of men that lived through one of the worst and deadliest blizzards the Midwest has ever recorded and learn from the stories that they have left behind. During the process, we will hear about the adventurous lives of the duck hunters that lived and hunted in this day and age. Then we will hear from a national expert on the Armistice Day blizzard of 1940 and hear from a man in the not-so-distant past that nearly died during a winter storm while in the pursuit of waterfowl. Buckle up. You're not going to want to miss this one. What's going on, folks? I am Jordan Fromer, and this is the Duck Gun Podcast. Welcome to the first of its kind waterfowl docu-podcast episode, where we'll be exploring the events surrounding the Armistice Day blizzard of 1940 and learning from the stories of the old American duck hunters that came before us. And just maybe, just maybe coming away with this with a better understanding of what made duck hunting and duck hunters what we are today. Today, I'm going to tell you a story, or rather, I'm going to bring you along on a journey. To do this, we will need to set the stage. America in the 1940s, well, it was a rural lifestyle, where many folks still lived off the land. It was a part of them. Technology took a backseat, leaving room for a deeper connection with the wild. Lanterns lit the way. It was a time of self-sufficiency, resourcefulness, and true grit. They relied on tight-knit communities and timeless traditions. E.A. Anderson, a duck hunter from this time, wrote the following in his account of the Armistice Day blizzard. I can't resist a reflection on the inflation in taxes. The four of us borrowed $20 from the Virginia Education Association Credit Union. And with that, we bought our four big game licenses for $2 each. We then bought most of the groceries for the two weekends with the remaining $12. Hearing these stories from duck hunters in the past is like opening a time capsule. It gives us a deeper connection with what duck hunting was and what duck hunting still embodies today. This first duck hunter that we're going to hear from is William E. Gladstitch from Bloomer, Wisconsin. 45 years later is a long time to give an accurate account of a snowstorm. But when you almost go down, you tend to remember small details and thoughts. The day before the storm, Sunday, my dad, Ernst Gladich, my uncle, Tula Otto, and I were on Lake Tidal at dawn, hoping for a bluebilly shoot. Lake Tidal is in Sibley County near Gaylord, Minnesota. We had our decoys spread out on the southwest side of Grass Island, and very few birds come to our decoys. At 8 a.m., I left my dad and uncle and went to church. My mother had insisted that hunting not interfere with church, 
She didn't have the same control of Dad or Uncle Tula, but I listened, and when she said jump, I asked how high while I was still in the air. After church, I headed back for Grass Island, taking along some hot chicken noodle soup for Dad and Uncle Tula. Mother Soup had big wide noodles about one half inch wide, six inches long. I also remember a watermelon. But a bit late in the year, but I remember it. My dad liked to eat well while hunting, not believing you had to suffer to have a good time. While we sat in our duck boats, all three tied together side by side, we ate our lunch, discussed whether to stay and hope for an evening shoot. It was becoming hazy, not cloudy, but just enough haze to hide the sun, and it was absolutely calm. We could hear a movement of wings overhead, couldn't see a bird because of the haze. In about 30 minutes, the sun cleared away the haze briefly. We identified them as turns. By one or two o'clock, the redheads started coming into our decoys. We expected teal, widgeons, or pintails, but they must have gone overhead with the turns. We never saw them. As a kid growing up in a duck hunting community, I heard a lot of talk about the northern flight of ducks. Some tales were told going back to the late 1800s. I wondered if I'd ever see the mythical northern flight. At 16, I'd been hunting for five years. I was beginning to think they were pulling my leg about the abundance of ducks when this flight was in progress. Today, those flocks of 50 to 100 redheads were flying over the lake just above the haze. Couldn't see, but could hear them. They would smell the lake and come diving out of the haze, plop into our decoys almost before we could shoot. We didn't even stay down in our blinds, just stood there and shot. They showed no fear of us. I'd be picking up ducks away from the blind, they still decoyed in with me in open water. We quit picking up and kept shooting. After a half hour of steady redheads, then canvas backs and bluebills poured into our decoys. My dad asked if I felt like a game hog yet. That hadn't occurred to me. He said, let's pick up and go home. Still, the ducks kept coming. I asked the old fellas why we had such a great shoot when it was so quiet. No storm or wind. They didn't have an explanation except that even a blind pig finds an acorn once in a while. So went my northern flight. It's amazing that we had such poor weather information in 1940. Just two years later, our forecasting improved to the point where they could tell us in the 8th Air Force what the weather would be over Germany the next day. Now, in 1985, we take weather forecasting for granted. Note, again, that hunting day was Sunday, November 10. That night, I went roller skating at the new home rink. I got home about 1 a.m., decided to go hunting to get some more of that northern flight shooting. Although word had gotten around that the flight was on, no one wanted to go with me. Dad and Uncle said no way in hell would they spend a night in a duck boat. So I went ahead by myself, shoving the duck boat into the lake at 2 a.m. So I was alone, my 18-foot duck boat, 
23 inches wide. I remember the width because that was the widest board I could buy at the local lumberyard. Plain 12-inch white pine and up 11 5-eighths inches. Use two for the bottom. Long and skinny. Quite tippy. The boat went well through the rushes and was easy to paddle. Had a deck at each end and under the decks I kept emergency equipment, such as a raincoat, an 8 by 4 foot hunk of canvas, a few cookies, apples, candy bars, and a summer sausage in a gallon pail. While I was setting out my blocks, great big snowflakes started to fall. Absolutely no wind. I believe the reason I remember all these details is because this storm was so unexpected. By the time I got the decoys placed, it was really snowing. I still had a couple hours until shooting light, so I laid down in the bottom of my duck boat with some straw I had there. This was before the days of air mattresses. I then covered up with a canvas and an army blanket was warm and dry. About daylight, the wind started. came from the northwest, and the anchors on my decoys were not heavy enough to hold the decoys. They started drifting downwind, so I tied the strings together to make a long train, anchoring each end to a different muskrat house. It was finally light enough to shoot. My first duck was a black mallard. When I went out to get it, I had a good deal of difficulty getting back to the island because of the strong wind. After that, I only shot at upwind ducks which would fall in the tall grass of the island. The water there was only about three feet deep, large number of rat houses. As the wind got even stronger, I jammed my push pole into a big rat house, tied my duck boat to it. Again, covered up with everything I had and stayed warm and dry. I knew I couldn't make it to the shore in that wind, so I stayed put. In the late afternoon, the heavy snow quieted the waves somewhat. They calmed down some. The lake started to freeze. The slush controlled the waves to where I thought I could handle them. I drifted and paddled with the wind to the south shore of the lake. I'd parked Dad's car on the north shore, so I was on the wrong side of the lake and had to walk home. Next day, we went to get the car. Couldn't find it because the snow was so deep. We used an iron rod, actually a muskrat spear, poked around until we located it. It was about four days before we could get the county plow to open the road so we could take the car home. That day I took my skates and a gunny sack, skated around the lake, picking up ducks that were still alive. We had to chop them out of the ice. Some we thawed out and released, some we cleaned and saved to eat. We didn't have a freezer then, but things stayed frozen on the back porch. There was only one other person on the lake that morning, as far as I know. It was Tanny Utendorfer. He was on Tree Island. He tried to make it during the wind and was swamped. With the wind direction as it was, he must have drifted close to Grass Island where I was, but I never saw nor heard him. His health was severely damaged by that experience. Les Cuba did a painting called Redheads Over Lake Tidal, which you might have seen. Grass Island is the one on the extreme right, and the painting the wind is from the northeast. 
The time that this storm hit Gaylord didn't coincide with when it hit the Mississippi River bottoms or western Minnesota. So if the storm moved about 25 to 30 mile per hour, should have been eight hours warning from western Minnesota to the eastern border of the state. In retrospect, I think what kept me from going down was my youth. This was just one excerpt from the book All Hell Broke Loose, which shares many stories of the people and the hunters that lived through the Armistice Day blizzard. In our story, a young hunter with his awesome duck boat headed out into the marsh and luckily made it back alive where many hunters did not. It was so cool to hear about so many of the things that are still relatable to us as duck hunters in his experience on these two days of hunting. As the old adage goes, some things will never change. Next, we'll hear from Neil Bibbing. He was a duck hunter from Hibbing, Minnesota. On Sunday, November 10th, 1940, at 4 a.m., an ordinary November day, my brother-in-law, Don, and I left for our duck hunting trip. We loaded our gear, a 17-foot ribbon canvas canoe, and left from Kerr location for Deer River. It was snowing, but we thought it would ease up toward daylight. By the time we reached Big Winnie near Bowen's Road, the snow was heavier and visibility was poor. At about 5.30 a.m., we reached Black Duck Lake, 30 miles north of Bemidji, and parked near Erickson's Farm Road on the lake shore. Put the canoe in the water, loaded our gear, and shoved off for the large island, one half mile away. The wind was so strong by this time, and the snow so heavy that the wave action rolled the snow into softball-sized pieces and piled these balls in layers on the water. As we neared the island, we watched a canoe with two men simply blow over from the wind. They lost all their equipment, but they were unharmed. By 7 a.m., we placed our decoys in a small sheltered bay, and by 8 a.m., we had our limit of ducks. By now, we realized we could never get back to shore and to the car. So with my belt axe, I downed a large balsam tree and constructed a lean-to. We spent the better part of the day gathering firewood. The temperature kept dropping and the wind became gale force. Since it was out of the question to return, Don kept the fire going. Hundreds of ducks tried to land on the slush, and with the spray from the waves and snow, their feathers froze, dispelling any chance of flight again. I cleaned and split a mallard duck, roasted it over the open fire, and we had unseasoned duck for supper. But our hunger was satisfied. We kept warm with the backlog of birch, which kept the heat reflected into the lean-to, and we did get some sleep during the night. Tuesday morning, about 6.30, the temperature dropped to about 28 degrees below zero. We spotted open water in an easterly direction and decided our best chance to get off the island was to try the waves. As we paddled down the lake, huge flocks of geese and thousands of ducks flew overhead. With the snow white out, I thought I could see some lumber piles toward shore. We walked atop ice for 150 yards, pulled up the canoe, and walked to the shore. The lumber piles turned out to be small cabins at Moose Point Lodge, operated by Martin Steen. A huge barking water spaniel welcomed us, so I knew people were nearby. We followed the dog through waist-deep snow to the farmhouse, where Martin was waiting with hot coffee and pancakes. We warmed our feet and hands by the oven door in the old wood range. Mr. Erickson, whose place we had parked nearby, called Martin to inquire about the two men on the island and to alert him of the geese heading his way. So, the outside world knew that we were safe and sound. About noontime, we were able to help shovel a path to the barn to get the animals out to water. At this time, there was nearly five feet of snow, and some of the drifts were at least ten feet high. 
After calling home to inform our families that we were okay, we settled in for the day. There was no transportation, and the trains would not be running soon. The highway to Bemidji was partially open, so about 11 a.m. we began the mile-and-a-half trek over the drifts to the highway. Our plan was to get to Black Duck and catch a train or bus to Bemidji. Luck was with us, and we were picked up by a seed salesman from Faribault. We rode with him into Grand Rapids. It was 6 p.m. and 28 degrees below zero in Grand Rapids. There was no bus transportation yet, but we managed to hitch a ride to Hibbing and home. We arrived home at 6.30 p.m. Wednesday night, where we found snowdrifts as much as 14 feet deep. The car, canoe, hunting supplies, and ducks were stranded for 13 days before we could retrieve them. However, a mink had discovered our sack of ducks and had eaten the breast of a teal. Now you've heard the stories of two duck hunters that survived the Armistice Day blizzard, and you've seen a bit into the life of the duck hunters of the past. But we need to know more information to fully understand this event in time and the duck hunters that lived through it. John Steffens is a Minnesotan, an avid waterfowl hunter, a school teacher, and has an interest in local history. His dad was caught out in the Armistice Day blizzard while duck hunting. John is the author of the book Wings in the Wind, which takes place during the blizzard. He will add insight and understanding to the events that transpire during this time. So when I was kind of got onto this whole story, my see my dad had had a stroke, and uh, I was living in Lacrosse at the time, Lacrosse, Wisconsin. My mom was in Winona, Minnesota, which is where the book Wings in the Wind takes place. And she would call me and say, you got to come down and help my dad. He's driving, or help your dad. He's driving me nuts. Take him to the Elks Club in Winona. So I'd take him to the Elks Club and, you know, have a beer with him and kind of hang out. And he was kind of a quiet guy, you know, my dad. He was a big outdoorsy guy. But he, I think he wasn't real happy with the fact that he, he couldn't get out anymore because he had a stroke. So uh, we'd talk, and then he'd, he'd tell me stories. Was, he was in the Navy from 1942 to 44. Um, so he would kind of just talk about that and talk about the storm. And then that kind of got me thinking about writing it. After he passed away, I found this journal and I still have it. I take it when I do book signings or whatever. And, uh, it's him journaling about the storm. And then I started digging deeper and I found out about the impact of this storm, both from a, from a weather forecasting standpoint, but just the amount of people that are impacted 150 people died in the state of Minnesota. I think 36 of them were duck hunters. And, uh, even as far up as Lake Superior, uh, boats were sank. And, uh, I talked to since then, you know, since the book came out, I've talked to a lot of farmers that, you know, lost flocks of turkeys and chickens and, and cattle in, um, just going from their house to the barn, they almost got lost, you know, and things like that. And all these stories came out. So I've kind of really, really enjoyed talking to these people to know it wasn't just a river bottom thing. It wasn't just a, a big blizzard thing, but it really impacted like most of the Midwest. Um, so that was kind of cool. That was sort of like I write the book and then all this other stuff comes out. I wish I, wish I knew it all ahead of time. And, and growing up in the river valley, um, I'll tell you what, the amount of, like when I was in high school, a lot of this amount of kids that would go duck hunting, 
probably compared to now was just crazy. I mean, duck hunting was like a, such a big deal. I, I used to hunt before school in high school. <laughs> We'd go out there like nine of us. We had three boats and we would go out there and we could shoot for like 40, 45 minutes. And then we'd have to like just cruise back and get to school on time. It was, so I'd be plucking ducks. I'd we'd be driving in the truck to head back to school. I got my gun in the back end, pulling a boat. We'd be, I'd be like resting ducks in my lap. Right. And, and we'd walk into school and all the teachers, that was kind of a common thing. I mean, you, you were a kid, you went duck hunting. So we'd walk into school and you know, teachers would say, how'd you guys do today? Right. It just kind of that whole waterfall, um, kind of, atmosphere that whole little gang of hunters that we had it was, it was a lot of fun duck hunting communities like this are the life force of what duck hunting was in the past and still is today although i did not grow up in a duck hunting community like this i can understand how cool it would have been to have that experience. I think we'd all be better off if more kids spent time hunting before school, cleaning ducks in their lap, and having a good old time. Now John is going to set the stage for the events leading up to and going into the Armistice Day blizzard. They started out as one of those like bluebird day, you know, where it was 55 degrees. And when my dad went out um, late morning, it was 55. It was it was sunny. Um, it was warm. And um, you know, as the day went on, the temperature started to drop, and it was like a big front that came through. And um, by the end of the night, by dark, uh, there were four foot waves in the back rollers or four foot rollers in the backwaters. Uh, my dad actually kept a journal and he wrote about four foot waves in the backwater, you know, 50, 60, 70 mile an hour winds. Um, by next morning, there was foot to 18 inches of snow on the ground. Um, a lot of the backwaters, um, after wind kind of died down, froze up. Um, and some of those big waves, if you've ever been in the Mississippi River backwaters, it's not, there's not a lot of elevation. So a lot of those waves crashed over into those backwaters and hunters who um, were stranded on those shorelines um, got wet and um, or the boats couldn't start. My dad's boat didn't start and um, they got stranded out there overnight. Well, this, this is 1940. And at the time, a lot of the weather or all the weather that came to the Midwest was not based out of Minneapolis and it wasn't 24 hours around the clock. It was coming out of Chicago and they shut down for the night. It wasn't, like the weather forecasting you have now where you just flip on the weather channel going on all three in the morning. And, um, so, you know, that storm just kind of brewed up and it, it actually kind of swept down through Oklahoma and just sort of came right up into the Midwest and brought all that moisture from the Gulf, but, but, uh, and also pushed down from the North. So you had that, you know, those big cold fronts where you get a lot of cold, that air coming up, coming from the north and that moisture coming up from the south and um, temperatures dropped, but the weather forecasting just wasn't the same. And actually after this storm, they switched everything around and the weather for this area in Minnesota came out of Minneapolis and it was 24 hours around the clock. 
and that was because of this storm. I think uh, clothing is certainly different. Um, you know, we can hunt and fish all day with some of the clothes that we have with the rain gear, but I, I, I remember helping my dad get dressed to take him deer hunting. He had a stroke, and I'd help him put on his pants, and everything was wool, right? So everything he had was stuff that got wet and didn't keep you dry, and once it got wet, you were in trouble. So I think uh, some of the advances in clothing here can kind of help us now, and we know what's coming ahead of time. He had a 14-foot boat, and, and, and I know the boat. Um, he, he had it for a number of years after that, and that thing was so shallow, I don't know how it could have hand, handled two-foot waves. So, yeah, four-foot waves in the backwaters, and, um, and then the main channel was just a mess. So guys that were trying to get out of the river bottom by crossing the main channel and you and I were talking earlier you, you've hunted the Mississippi River bottoms you got one side usually the main channel and the other side is usually you know backwaters and you know bulrushes and potholes and things like that and sloughs um, but that main channel was really whipping it up so if people tried to get out of the river bottoms through the main channel that was even worse. One of the notable things about the stories we hear from the Armistice Day blizzard was fellow hunters and fellow man helping each other out in a time of need. One story that stands out above the rest is the story of Max Conrad. The Winona, Minnesota airport is named after Max Conrad. And Max Conrad was a pilot, and he actually set um, a lot of records for um, uh, flight time um, with small aircraft. He was a, he was a former Bush pilot um, up in Canada. And the, he went up the next day in his plane, his little plane, and would drop supplies to stranded hunters. And meanwhile, there was two Corps of Engineers boats on the main channel um, one of them was a Chippewa, and they would watch Max Conrad's plane circle around so they could tell where stranded hunters were. He was he would kind of circle around, and they could they would know well there's some hunters over there because he's circling, he's dropping stuff. So yeah, he became you know he was kind of a well known pilot before this happened, and actually to take his plane, get it off the ground, and the that day after that storm to go out looking for hunters. There are 75 mile an hour winds and people had to hold his aircraft down on the um, runway because the wind was going to flip his plane over. He got off the ground. He was battling a headwind um, that would almost stall his plane out. And so he, uh, yeah, it was kind of a heroic thing for him to do that. And in my book, I actually kind of write a little bit from his perspective um, because I did a lot of uh, reading of articles about, you know, his attempts to save people and rescue people and um, get rescue parties to those stranded hunters. I read a lot about Max Conrad. His co-pilot, um, last name Bean, he, uh, he just passed away not that long ago. He's living over in Fountain City. I think he was in Fountain City. Um, I know he was in Winona for a while but I never got to meet him. Someone later on after I wrote this book said, yeah, the guy's still alive. And went on, you got to go talk to him. Um, but I never made it over there to talk to him. So he had a co-pilot with him. I think it was a flight student. 
um, that was, was taking along and helping him. Um, but since I wrote this book, I've, I've, I've spoke to different groups, whether it's a, um, like a credit union that invites me in, I meet with people or some other social groups and things. I went to Elma, Wisconsin. They had a big theater thing and I, I, they invited me up to talk about the storm, but so many people have come forward and, and talked about, yeah, I remember that. My grandpa said that they went out looking for, you know, my, my uncle and his kids. Um, the day after the storm and two of them died and, and they fell through the ice trying to get to them. And so I've heard all these cool stories about families remembering it and kind of recounting some of their relatives that either survived or, or, you know, didn't make it. So that was kind of some, some very interesting stuff that I've heard from people. I, I would guess that after this storm, hunters were, um, paying pretty close attention to the weather, you know, especially if they lost people that they know and loved ones. Um, I usually check, I'm kind of a fanatic about checking the weather and I'm, you know, always looking to see, you know, what's coming. Um, but we could do that now. I think back then they didn't have that. So it was like, Oh, it's 55 degrees and eh, it might be a little warming, but I'll go out anyway. Not knowing that later on things are going to get bad. My, my dad told me, that he, you know, unlike a lot of the guys he knew, because he, he had people that he knew die in the storm, that he uh, he was pretty prepared. He had an extra coat along and, and a pair of gloves. I mean, he he was prepared, he said, but for what he encountered, he said it was it was tough to be that prepared. And, and a lot of these um, older gentlemen I've talked to since I, since I wrote the book and since there's been a little bit of talk about the storm, um, you know, they talk about just never seeing so many ducks in their life, you know, coming down there. It was like the mass migration. It was like, here they all come all out trying to stay ahead of that storm. So it's like the ducks, the ducks kind of knew what was going on. Some of these stories that have come out about, about the people that were in the storm and, and some of these hardcore, like you had kind of alluded to the fact these, these are pretty tough hunters and, and, uh, you know, they, it was quite a battle for survival. They were they were used to being on elements, right? They're duck hunters, so it was a it was a challenge. We will never know many of the stories of the hunters that didn't make it out, but the stories we have heard and the accounts of the storm that we have heard bearing witness to the mighty storm and the blizzard that came on that day of November eleventh, nineteen forty. It was amazing to hear the stories of complete strangers coming together and helping out fellow man. This next story is just that, a story of a modern-day hero in his own right. Two friends hunting during a winter storm with 40-mile-per-hour winds and temperatures plummeting into the low 30s. A fight to survive ensued. When I woke up that morning, my wife told me, I don't want you to go. And so that's how the day started. And I'm like, it'll be all right. It'll be fine. You know, we'll go out. And and I hadn't even checked the weather for the day. And usually I was pretty strict on, like, oh, I want to know what's what the wind, what the weather's going to be like, if there's going to be rain, snow coming in, temperatures, all that. That feeling, she goes, I don't want you to go. I don't think you should go. I'm like, well, we'll be all right. You know, we'll get out there and. If it's bad, that's bad. We'll come in, no problem. So, 
got ready and headed out. Met him either at Tippy Lake's boat ramp or um, a gas station right down on 13 there, the BP station. And um, so we hit the gas station, grabbed some stuff for the snacks, drinks, whatever. And there was other people out that were at the gas station, other duck hunters and stuff. And so he's like, we're sitting there trying to figure out exactly where we were going to go. And he's like, well, we can go down the Webster. It's right here. So we drove down the backwater. I think he had been out there before. He'd been out there musky fishing, definitely. And I'm pretty sure he had been out there hunting before. And so, yeah, he had. Because he knew kind of an area he wanted to set up at. So we went out, got the boat launched out with the dog, and started heading out. In the channel, super smooth. And then we went out and got into the open lake. It kind of got a little choppy but nothing crazy i rode on the front of the boat the whole way out and i mean nothing crazy got out to where we wanted to be wind was blowing a bit kind of blowing the decoys around setting them up and stuff and we didn't set a ton of decoys up just because it was like well it's a bit windy we'll just kind of set what we set and just hunker in just kind of see what kind of happens and so that's what we did hunkered in and their boat had um a pullover blind. So we pulled that over and just waited. And so his dad was out on, I think, the opposite side of Webster and a little UFO. And so we sat there and waited and started getting light. Some birds started coming in a little bit, but they were pretty high. Wind started kind of picking up a little bit. And we're like, well, we may not end up getting anything today, but that's fine. Whatever. And eventually the wind just kind of kept picking up more and more and it started getting pretty pretty choppy and we had a, one bird came in pretty close and i just like he's like i think i'm gonna try to try to hit it all right you're fine i didn't even shoot so he pulled up he hit it and it went down well it just kept getting worse and we started <laughs> kind of looking at each other like well we might want to think about getting out of here and it started blowing the decoys it blew the decoys clear to the opposite end at that point right yeah let's wrap this up (laughs) we're gonna get out of here so we cruised down got the decoys and he's like well we'll look for kind of trolling back on our way all right well got the decoy started heading back up what had pushed us over into the seawall on that side and we were slammed up on the seawall and he's like yeah, I'm not really liking this. And I say, that was my second season being out. And so the year prior, I pretty much just hunted fields. That's all I hunted. And I didn't have a ton of time on a boat. I mean, I followed the river, but not a ton of lake experience on, especially like a John boat. I think it was a, is there a 15 or 16 foot, just like a flat bottom John boat? I think it had like a 15 to 25 horse, somewhere in there. I mean, and it had um, tunes on the back for buoyancy. And we'd always, I mean, we'd been out on Lake James before. And you could tell over on Tippy, because you crossed the channel over, that it was getting pretty windy over there. But on Lake James, it was nothing. And we 
cut back cross and hit tippy and it was probably one and a half two footers and you're hitting spray the whole time back across and i whether it was just because <laughs> i had not ton experience on boats wasn't too nervous you know knew that the worse weather the better usually the hunts were i think the weather report said it was like 40 plus it's a good size lake and so it catches and when the wind's catching across it it'll pick up and so we were busting on the kind of hitting on the seawall a little bit and he's like yeah i'm not liking this too much okay and say lack of experience i guess was just kind of like oh well no big deal you know we like when we crossed tippy it was rough and at that time it was kind of like well this is what's in my head is we've been through some rougher water before so not big deal and so we pushed off and he just started heading across back towards to get to the channel just cutting across the lake and it was hitting it hard and (laughs) trying to keep the, the dogs all he's getting walking around and getting him lay down and just sit and had everything pulled up over my face trying to just keep the sea blast out of my face and i look back at him he's pretty much doing the same thing trying to just keep running across the lake and i mean it was probably three footers or so if not a little bit bigger and just the wind would blow the boat and kind of get you turning off your course and the waves hitting you and so we were just trying to cook across and I just happened to kind of look back at one point and from the transom pretty much up to where he was standing was full of water. And I was just like, oh, kind of shocked and told him like, hey, we're taking on water. And he looked down and he was like, tried to kind of hammer it out and try to get some of the water out. And about right when he kind of went to go do something, it was like, the wind and a wave hit us just like perfect and just kind of brought it up enough more in the front that it just started really taking the water in. And we didn't have our life vests on at the time. Not very smart. But it started going and he was yelling for help. And I was just like, well, I'm going for some life vest. And they were underneath a little bit of the decoy bags, so... I started grabbing for him, and I gripped the first one out and just handed it right to him, and then started digging for the second one. And by the time I got it out, when it wasn't long at all, I mean 30 seconds probably, I was standing in water and pulling it up out of the water to try to get it on. And by that time, just kind of everything started floating out, and so I pushed off the boat and got into the open water and... At that time, I still wasn't, he was kind of panicked in my thought process. Like, he's kind of worried, I can tell. He's yelling for help a lot, and at the time, I guess, I don't know, it was just ignorance or whatever else. Wasn't really panicked yet. Wasn't super worried. It was definitely in the 30s, probably 34 ish you know around there i was wearing um i had uh long johns on i had hoodie on like a regular sweatshirt on hoodie and then i had a kind of a cabela's pullover 
like quarter zip big hoodie that's all insulated um i have can't think of the bit gator they're chest waders insulate they're really nice insulated ones i had those on and then i had big carhartt hunt winter gloves on and had a neck garter that was all insulated and had an old school um army helmet liner like jace robinson would wear i had one of those on and then he was pretty bundled up too i mean later i found i mean he had he had um long johns on say pants he had uh neoprene waders and then he had on i mean layers of t-shirts <laughs> I mean, he had on like a long sleeve under armor and like a long sleeve t-shirt or a cut off and then a long sleeve t-shirt and then like two sweatshirts and he had a knitted hat on and hood up and so we we're you know dressed pretty good for the weather i mean i'd worn that most of the winter colder season part of the season and been pretty well fine so say so we get out in the open water Say, I'm not even worried yet. My thought process, I was literally thinking, I had just bought a brand new Browning shotgun. (laughs) And I I always kept it in a um, floatable case, a nice one. And so I'm like, I'm grabbing my my gun. I'm not losing it out here in this lake. It's paying like $1,000 for it. And so I'm grabbing my gun, and he shoves some decoys, big old cluster of decoys my way. And so I, he's like, get on the decoys, you know? I'm like, all right. So I get on the decoys, and I'm like, oh, you know, this we're not too bad off. And I looked up, and I think we were like, we both tried to figure it, and he's better at figuring distance than I was. And I'm like, what do you figure we were out? And we figured we were 250, 300 yards out. And it's a pretty good little stint. And I still wasn't, I looked up and seen pretty far out here still wasn't super super worried so we started floating and i kind of just scanned he's still yelling some and i yelled about really four times for help and like after that fourth yell i kind of just scanned the whole shoreline and seen absolutely nobody out no cars no lights on and that hit me there like we're completely alone out here everybody's gone for the winter in these lake houses and we're on it by ourselves so, we just started floating in, and it's like I think he was about doing the same thing I was doing, and just when you'd hit a wave, that wave hit us, we just kind of tried to lay flat as we could, because we didn't have our life vests on on, pretty much using them as boogie boards, and every time that wave would kind of push you, we'd just kind of do the frog, you know, under water, just kind of help it push you, just kind of keep doing that every time a wave would hit, and there was... You know, a few times we're kind of slip on the decoys and get bobbing up and down. The wave would hit you over your head and you'd be under, have to come back up and spit the water out and kind of be like, this is, you know, my experience on it. So we just bobbing and kicking and thinking, eventually hit that point where you're like, okay, you know, this might be this might be the time that we're going to be done for. And thinking of your wife and your parents. And you got to just keep going. You have to keep going. You can't just die out here. So just kind of kept pushing. And 
got to the point where I thought my waders were starting to weigh me down. And so I took my one glove off and unclipped my waistband and unclipped my shoulder straps and kicked my waders off out in the lake and just started kind of swimming, still swimming in and hoping to get some weight off. Then I started feeling my feet getting cold for sure. Hand was starting to get cold because it was out getting the wind hitting on it. And we were still going in. Got to the point where I was like praying. Like, God, so we were still out a bit. I was like, God, if you want us to live here, you got to help us here. And I asked, right after I got done with that, I asked him, like, okay, I'm like, hey, you know the lake. How far till we hit like a sandbar or something? You know, where are we at? Kind of, is there sandbars over here? And really wasn't getting much out of him at the time. And so we just kept <laughs> kept humming along. And eventually we hit a bar and hit mud. And that was the best feeling at that time <laughs> I felt ever. I mean, it was just like, yes, we finally hit something. We're good here. Once we hit the mud, I really wasn't... In my head, I'm like, okay, we made it to land. So how I was feeling, I was like, oh, we're good, you know. Maybe one of these places will have somebody in it. Maybe it won't. I was thinking in my head, phone. Maybe someone has a landline still in here. We can call. So I just headed right up to shore. And say my waders were off and everything. So I just hopped right up on shore. Went up right up to a first house I found. Knocking on the door. Nobody. Okay. So I went to a house next door. Knocked. Nobody. Went to another house next door. Knocked. Nobody. Okay, I'm breaking in some of these places. <laughs> so I went back around that first place thinking, okay, it's an older cottage, landline. So I just opened the screen door and just shouldered the door in and went in, looking around real quick, no landline. Okay, went, checked the shower real quick, thinking, okay, maybe some get warm water on us. Checked the shower, nothing. Like, oh, crap. So I turned back around from that and said, it didn't take long for me to check real quick that stuff. Just a quick glance over everything. And he ain't there. I'm like, well, where's he at? Like, what's he doing out there still? I'm like, is he still in the lake? Thinking to myself. So I headed back out to the lake. And yeah, he was still, he got up to the seawall. And there's a step to get up on the seawall and then get up onto the ground. And he was laying on that step. And I'm like, dude, like, you got to get up out of that water. I'm like, you're going to die out here. And he's just nothing. Oh, crap. So I got down in the water. I was like, hey, we got to get out of here, dude. We got to go. We got to get up in this house. Busted this door. We got to get up in there, man. We can't be out here. We're going to, it's not going to work out for us. And he was just like, uh, just kind of mumbling, really. So I started unattaching his waders and pulled them off of him out there to get some weight off and just put his arm around my shoulder and tried to kind of pick him up and got him up onto the ground and just kind of kept walking with him stopping every few steps to kind of catch my breath and just kept walking him up there and eventually got up to there and just kind of what I had left just shoved him up in the house and so I got in 
and just shut the screen door behind us. I was like, all right, well, at least we're inside now. Now we're still in my head. I'm thinking we're gonna be we're gonna be good. We're gonna be all right here. We're in out of the element. So I just started taking my clothes off, thinking, okay, you know, everything you heard, getting wet clothes off, because that just keeps lowering your body temperature. So I got mine off, had a knife. So I went with him, like, hey, we got to get the clothes off. I'm saying, I'm just still talking to him. Like, maybe he's still going to, he can start talking and help or something. And he's still just nothing. All right, dude, I got to get your stuff off you. And I cut right up his shirts, right up the middle, and just cut them in half. Just opened them up and tried to get his pants, couldn't get them off. They were just so stuck to him. So I ran to the, there was a little bedroom in there and was looking for blankets. And there was like three sleeping bags in there. And so I just snatched those off the bed and opened them up and threw two of them on him and just kind of wrapped them all around him and just put one on me, trying to get warm. And there was a little stove in there. So I kind of looked at it, trying to figure out if maybe I could get it going. And it was just an oil stove. Like, okay, I can't get this thing going. Like, well, I gotta try to find help. So I went to the second place I knocked. Knocked again, no one. So I just hit the door there and went in looking for a landline. Couldn't find one. But there was a grill in there. I'm like, okay, well, this grill and it had a propane tank on it. I was like, okay, well, maybe we could use this. So I checked it and it started. I'm like, okay. Well, maybe I can drag it over there to him. And I'm thinking, I'm like, eh, you're probably not going to be able to do that. I'm like, well, I have to drag him over here. I'm like, eh, you're probably not going to be able to do that. It was pretty hard to get him just in the house, let alone have to pick him back up now and get over here. I'm like, go to another place and look for someone or a phone or something. So I went back, checked on him. At this point, he was blue lips. And was starting to foam at the mouth. And there was nothing. He wasn't shivering. Wasn't making any noises. Nothing. He was just laying there. Just kind of like. You could tell he was still breathing. But he was looking pretty bad. And I was. That was the point where I was like. Okay. He might die out here. And. I cannot. Just think in my head. You cannot let this happen. Cannot. He cannot die out here. Like this. And. So. There was a fire extinguisher. Need the next place was a nicer place. So I went, grabbed that, went over and looked at the house and there was a big glass door. And then she had a little glass like viewing window, but it was all frosted and broke the viewing window out and alarm started going off. And I was like, perfect, perfect, you know. They're going to come out. That's awesome. And so I finally went in, yelling for anybody. Nobody answered. Looking for a landline. No landline. Like, crap. So I went and I sat on the steps. I was like, okay, they come. I don't want them just looking around for someone robbing this place. I want to be there. That way it's like, I'm here. This is buddies over here. We got to go. So I sat there and I don't don't know the time how long i sat there to me it felt like 
20 minutes. It wasn't that long, probably, but it just felt like forever. Like they are taking forever to get out here. Like they got to hurry up. He can't, he's not going to last that long. And so it's just like, okay, went back and found the bathroom that had for the one bedroom as a master bath and had a tub in it. So I checked the water and it worked. And so I just started filling it up like lukewarm water. Like you're just going to have to get them over here. There's no if ands, or buts about it. You're just going to have to. So I went back out. I was like, all right. They say they weren't here. It's like, you're going to have to go do it. So I opened the door to go out and looked down the road. And there was two people walking a dog. And so I just ran right to them and say, nothing but my boxers. And they're like, you know, are you okay? I'm like, and you guys got to call the cops. Me and my friend sank our boat out here, and he's in really bad shape. You got to call the cops. And so we went back to where I, the nicer place where I'd started the tub, and I went in and shut the tub off. And I was like, you know, they were calling the cops. Like, what's the address? I'm like, I have no clue the address. I'm like, I've this is my first time being out here. I have no clue where we're at, what the addresses are, what house numbers are, nothing. I know it's what, you know, I know the lake. That's it. And Mike, like, well, where's he at? Like, he's back over at this other house. So we ran back over there and they were, they figured out the address because they live there and, and the, on the road. And I was just telling them, I was like, we made it, dude. They're coming. They're coming. We were good. We made it. And, they, they showed up and carted him off to the hospital. He was still pretty bad. And I didn't go to the hospital. So the only thing that really, to me, felt cold. And later I looked up the symptoms of, like, hypothermia. What levels? And he was in the most severe state. And I was, like, in a mild state. And he's a smaller guy. I mean, he's 120 pounds. Very skinny guy. And I'm a little bit bigger. About 180, almost 200 probably, 200 now. So a little bit bigger, a little bit more insulation on me. And the only thing that really hurt on me was my toes. My toes were killing me pretty bad. But they checked me out there, and they're like, well, everything seems good for you. Like, So if you don't want to go, you don't have to. I'm like, no, I'll just not go. I think I'll be fine. And they thought we were dead. Well, they had the paramedics and the fire department came out. And them guys, I talked to them, and they said, well, we got reports that you guys are still in the water. I'm like, no, we got out as soon as we could. And then the DNR came out, and they called a chaplain out because they said they thought they had a report of one was dead and one was on his way. So they called the chaplain out to come get us, you know, whoever was alive, last rites and stuff. The doctor told him when he was in the hospital that – um his body temperature was two degrees off from him being dead. He's like, if you'd been in that water five more minutes, he goes, you'd be dead right now. So I went to the hospital. Uh, my wife and my father-in-law came, and they didn't even tell her nothing. They were just like, you know, you, you know, he was involved in this accident. And she, like she said, she came on, and she was like, you're hearing that, you know, someone was dead pretty much. And... She's like, they wouldn't say who it was or nothing. 
And she's like, so I showed up, and and she's like, you know, oh, they're just saying, you know, you're a hero, you're he's a hero, he's a hero. And she's like, who? Who's even alive? Who's who's here and who's not? And yeah, it was seeing her was a rough moment, you know, hit you like timing. You know, I was laughing and joking with the paramedics. It was kind of like, you know, not like it was it had it really. I guess we went and checked on him. And after they kind of let us, said, you're good to go. And went in. He's all wrapped up like a mummy on this bed. <laughs> and he's like, his first word is like, I'm sorry, man. I'm like, you have nothing to apologize for. Like, we made the decision to go out. I was there, made the decision. We both made this decision. And like, we're good, dude. You have nothing to apologize for. I'm like, the main thing that matters here is like, we made it out. We lived, we're both here, we made it out. That's the most important thing, 100%, that we made it. Because a lot lot of people do not make it. I feel in debt to them. I really, truly do. I don't, let's say, people threw the hero word around. I'm like, I, I do not feel that at all. I'm just doing what I would think anybody would try to do in that situation. I mean, there's no real thinking there. You're just kind of running on what your brain's throwing at you at the time. And you don't have time to sit there and try to be like, oh, well, you know, this. And it's like whatever your brain's throwing at you at the time is what you're thinking and what you're trying to run on. And no, I don't. Them guys say we had. That's really the first time I'd seen him in years that season. And started hunting together, and just kind of the friendship sparked back up. Like they're family to me today, you know, and I feel really indebted to them. When I set out on this journey to create the documentary podcast, I fully had intended to come away with this seeing the many ways that duck hunting and duck hunters had changed over the years. But as the old saying goes, there's nothing new under the sun. The gear and the technology and the weather forecasting has come a long way, but the men wielding them are still very much the same. We're avid waterfowlers. We still have brother helping brother in a time of need, and we still have the unexplainable drive to chase these birds we call ducks. As always, folks, the mission of the Duck Gun Podcast is to be entertaining, be educational, and to help with conservation. Do me a big favor, share this with your buddies if you enjoyed it, and help us spread the message of our mission to duck hunters near and far. Also, guys, if you enjoyed this documentary podcast, the first of its kind for me, then definitely give me your feedback, best places to reach me fellowship of the duck gun or on facebook duck and chronicles or instagram as well feel free to message me and let me know how much you enjoyed these podcasts and maybe in the future we can get another one of these documentary podcasts coming guys we got to give a big thanks to the partners of the podcast that make this all possible we got motion ducks the jerk rig on steroids we got fa the one-stop shop from the for the duck hunters we got on x the app for waterfowlers for mapping and all the tools that come along with it. We got Weatherby making excellent waterfowl shotguns. 
Guys, that's all I got for today. I'm Jordan from Duck and Chronicles, and we'll see you guys on the next one.